available in more homes than the Pac-12 Network. We are the Podcast of Champions. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online. And here he goes, Miles Jack! And I'm Ryan Abraham from uscfootball.com. Liner going to try to sneak it ahead. Touchdown, SC! We are the Podcast of Champions. Welcome, everyone, back to the podcast of champions. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online, the UCLA site on the 24-7 Sports Network. And I'm Ryan Abraham from uscfootball.com, the USC site on the 24-7 Sports Network. And together we make the podcast of champions, talking all things Pac-12 football. I don't know if you know this, Dave. There are Pac-12 football players, not within the state of California, but outside the state of California. That are currently on campus, working out, getting tested, getting ready for the 2020 football season. Can you believe this day has finally come? I can't. I can't. Especially when it took us, uh, this is the third try on just starting this show. I can't believe that anything is being done competently right now when I couldn't say the same thing that we've said dozens upon dozens upon dozens upon dozens of times. To be fair, I think you tried to say it differently, and that just didn't work. You have no, to. No, God, you got it your was routine. a disaster, an absolute disaster. <laughs> I was trying to prove to myself that I can like speak off the cuff in a formalized manner. No, no, sir, I cannot. It's not that easy. We should have you take over talking about, you know, hey, you want to email us? Packtoapodcast at gmail.com. Or if you'd rather call or text us, we did get a voicemail this week, Dave, but it was blank. So sorry. So someone tried, but they couldn't do it. You know, couldn't hey, say there. the words. Getting there. Yeah, but then someone did actually call the number four two four five three two zero six seven eight. You could tweet us, and we got a really interesting topic to talk about this week. Uh, at Pac Twelve Podcast is our Twitter, the website Pac Twelve Podcast dot com, and please subscribe and rate us on all the different podcasting apps. But if you happen to have an Apple device, go to that Apple Podcasting app. Five-star review, five-star rating, positive reviews, negative reviews, whatever you want. But leave us those five stars and then say whatever you'd like about the show. We appreciate that. We also have a Reddit page, Podcast of Champions. Check it out over there. But, yeah, Dave, we should try – you could do off the cuff. We can try to have you say all the different mumbo-jumbo how to contact us each week and, and change it a little bit. Not a chance. Not a you could do it. I know so you I, can. So here's, here's – uh, there's a distinction here. I can babble. Like anybody else, like I can just talk nonsense. I can form an opinion and argue it heavily for 30 minutes about something I know nothing about, but give concrete information, but in a varied cadence or a varied style each time. No, sir. No, I cannot do that. I cannot. I will not. I would I would be a horrendous like teacher of a subject because like a formalized lesson plan that you just kind of go off based off like what's going on in the classroom. No, way. I can babble. Or I can do like a formal presentation where I'm reading the exact same thing. But no. there's no, no, never the twain shall meet. No. <laughs> okay, well, it, there's a skill. There's a little bit of a skill there. But I think you get used to it. You do it a few times. You kind of get used to it. You know what you want to say. You just have to say it in a little bit different way each time. Uh, we do beg, though, for the five stars all the time. Uh, did we get any new uh, reviews? Ryan begs. Ryan begs. I play hard to get. Um, okay. We did. We got four. We got four new reviews. Uh, first one from D baked five stars. Uh, why do I keep listening to this? 
After many months of self-reflection, I believe that I have finally found the answer. While your eyes would never betray it, I'm several years David Woods' senior, and I'm all... Ooh, that's actually an insult to me. I like it. Yeah, very And I'm also so. a fellow UCLA alum. As such, I've developed an almost parental affection for David's efforts on the podcast. Ooh, I feel this one's going to be good. Was there efforts in quotes, or was it just... No, a... but it just felt like it should have been. <laughs> okay. Uh, for me, continuing to tune in is akin to never missing your young child's piano recitals, even though the kid is terrible. It's a soft form of encouragement to keep morale high. I mean, there is plenty of time for the cruel hard world to expose all of the child's inadequacies and utter lack of talent. There's simply no need to expose those deficiencies at a young and tender age. Ryan is like the soft-spoken friend from down the street who always seems to stop by just in time for dinner. He's well-intentioned, always washes his hands, and never asks for seconds. His presence is so routine that sometimes you forget that he's even over. The weird part of this whole thing is that you've never met his parents and you're really not sure what, that you care to. Something just isn't quite right about a family that outsources dinner for their son every evening. There are warning flags, like having the smarts to get into USC but not having the judgment to go somewhere else. While I appreciate the occasional effort that goes into the podcast, I'm sure that I will fairly easily find something far more informative and thought-provoking to listen to if and when David and Ryan decide to mercy kill the POC. But as long as the boys keep showing up, I'll keep providing encouragement in the form of, sometimes painfully, sitting through the show. Keep it up. You two are doing great. That's that a great was review. Perfect. Yeah. Five stars. That's all we care about. Five and we'll stars. read however many insults you want to dole out. Yeah, you threw a few barbs at both of us. It's fine. It's great. We like that. Yeah. Uh, we've got R to the Dizzy, another five star. A podcast. Uh, I googled, quote, mediocre podcasts about obscure subjects, and this was the first result. Did not disappoint. A man that looks like a Jack Links commercial extra and has a mild affinity for UCLA football talks with another man who might be Littlefinger and has the memory of a goldfish about the least relevant Power 5 football conference. They occasionally become tired of discussing politics, history, and children's entertainment and spend some time discussing the Pac-12, a decent podcast to listen to while in the dentist chair. Their betting picks are useful as long as you do exactly the opposite of what they suggest. To use a food analogy, cauliflower. Again, a beautiful five-star that review. Is, that is great. I mean, these are – our man, they're just so good. Our listeners are amazing. They write these awesome reviews. I love it. I love every bit. From Blaze, another five-star review. Witty and smart, very entertaining, and always well-prepared. That's got to be deep sarcasm, right? Yes, I would think so. The only way we can take that one. Yeah. Uh, another five-star review from Florida USC fan. POC. Great podcast if you are looking for laughs and some enjoyable banter. This is an especially good pod podcast if your Pac-12 team is sucking wind. David and Ryan do their best to look at the bright side of even worse teams, except UCLA. I do like the week-by-week -week rankings. Nice. All right. So we well, got just, one, like, semi-serious. Yeah, two funny <laughs> ones, one, like, ironic one, and then one, like, you know, yeah. that was kind of serious. All right, I like it. I'll take it. I'll take it. That's a good ratio. Uh, great stuff. We do appreciate those. Thanks for uh, for leaving them. It really helps grow the show. Tell your friends all that, that fun stuff. And like like we said at the top of the show, though, uh, we got some some new. We got some like like some breaking news because we got to talk about the Pac-12. The LA Times did a full story on it. If you check out uh, John Wilner's uh, great hotline newsletter, uh, it looks like most of the Pac-12 schools are back outside of the California schools. Um, the LA times did a big piece. Uh, so if you ever, uh, Brady McCullough, who used to cover USC. So I got to know him a little bit there. He does more national stuff now. So in general, there's PAC 12 rules out there for allowing the students back on campus. And it seems like most, you know, all the schools are coming up with their own plans. 
Uh, I think the California schools, because they're still dealing with some of the California governmental regulations, they're still trying to work out plans with their local government and the state government. But I think that's going to be soon. We might see California schools report as early as next week. But uh, in general, the rules are that schools uh, consistently educate players about COVID-19 prevention. So they have to you know, be vigilant about that. Uh, players have to wear a mask and keep social distance at all times on campus. Seems like a tough one when you're going to be practicing, but that's that's one of the things. Uh, players uh, complete diagnostic testing upon return, so everyone's going to get tested when they get back, so we'll find out what's going on. Uh, players are grouped into like pods of 10 or fewer for workouts, uh, and he puts a note in there. Washington's actually starting with five, and they're, they call them like cohorts or pods for uh, easier tracing of contacts and to prevent an outbreak if there is a positive case. So they're trying to keep small groups on campus, which makes sense. Uh, the players aren't going to share equipment, and they're going to disinfect all the workout apparatus. Uh, they will test frequently. Uh, the, the the testing frequency will ramp up to at least weekly once players move into phase where they are closer in closer contact and considered more high risk for exposure. So the more risk, the more testing. And then schools will remain flexible depending on what is happening with the virus in society and maintain communication with local health officials. So, um I think Arizona and Arizona State are back, Dave. Uh, Washington was back. They're, they're doing stuff. Um, so I think, I think Oregon State, uh, they had like 100 athletes, not just football, moved back in. Uh, they returned to campus on, on Monday. Uh, Colorado began its restart on Monday. Um, Washington State, uh, I believe, too. So I think um, – Washington State had no positive tests. They were testing people. So it looks like just about everybody's back except the California schools right now. Yeah. And uh, and those I'm sure will be coming here shortly. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it's obviously promising in some respects that they're able to kind of get the process going. Um, if everyone was paying attention last week, one worrying thing that came out was that uh, was it Houston had to basically immediately shut things down because they had a bad testing plan in place, more or less. Right? I think they, so. I they think didn't they were test them before they got to campus or right when they got to campus. They tested them only if they were planning on only testing if there was a reason to test, i.e. somebody was symptomatic. Yeah, I believe Something that like was that. the I believe that was the case. And then I think they had six players test positive and then they shut things down. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think any Pac-12 schools in danger of having a policy so lax, um, at least from everything we're reading and seeing. Um, so I wouldn't expect any like abrupt ends like that. Um, the, 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 the test is going to be when a bunch of guys get sick on one team, what happens? Um, and we still don't know what that's going to look like in the PAC 12 for Houston. That meant shutting down basically their entire athletic department and starting over in a couple of weeks, I think. Um, but for the PAC 12, it, it just kind of remains to be seen, but so far so good, right? I would think so. Yeah. I mean, there's obviously there's some states uh, around the country that have seen an increased number of cases. Arizona is one of them. Um, and it depends what, you know, how you want to look at the data, you know, but there's still, you know, it seems like more minimal risk when it comes to younger player, you know, younger people in the country. Um, but it seems like things are going in the right direction, barring some kind of thing that happens in Houston, like say, I don't know, say Cal comes back. And there's some kind of huge outbreak and they have to shut down. Like, what does the rest of the Pac-12 do? Like, there's still a lot of questions out there. But right now, everyone's kind of taking these baby steps towards 
you know, the final goal of where you need to go. Just hoping it's like a Indiana Jones, you know, when he's walking through uh, trying to get the idol and you're like taking these steps, trying not to step on the, the pressure point that will shoot a poison dart at you. Um, there's a lot of poison darts out there and you're hoping to walk, you know, this, this path. They're just trying to find the right steps to get to the final goal and get that golden idol. Um, and get the, you don't want Belloc uh, stealing it from you at the end, but you yeah. want to try to get through there. And I think we're at least making progress through. Maybe we got past where the spears, like with the sun shines through and the spears like stab you. Like, I think we got well, it's through all there. in and out, dude. You, you got to get in, you got to get the idol, but then you got to get out of there before the rolling ball comes in and yeah. squashes you flat. Like, they've got to, they've got to get the season in. And then the rolling ball that is like winter when things get colder suddenly and it's, you know, things probably not be looking good in December, get out of there, you know, get out of there away from the, uh, from the rolling ball of death. Yeah. Well, all of the students will be off like they're Everyone's basically ending, um, the, the school year by like, I think a lot of schools right? are, yeah, I don't yeah. think everyone has decided, but a lot of schools are moving that direction. Um, which will be interesting. I think the rationale doesn't make a ton of sense. I mean, they're going to, come back at some point and it's still going to be January. It's still going to be cold. And yeah. it's like, they're still going to have come back from seeing family, but fine. Makes sense. Um, but yeah, it sounds like a lot of them are ending them early, but that's not going to do anything for the season, which I think is still the plan is to basically just play the full season. Um, right. but so you'd have like, say like Alabama has got to play the sec championship game and then they got to play, yeah. you know, the first round of the playoff and like students have been like gone for a month and a half. And you have these players in like some NBA kind of bubble, like at this point, we're like, okay, we guys got to take care. No, of actually, players. in Alabama, and in the in the, in the case of the schools with the big budgets, you've got them each in their own individual physical bubble, like oh, they nice. they're just in that bubble, and they like move around. It's like one of those, you know, those like rolling balls that you play with on like a playground where you can get in the ball and then you can just kind of move around in it, like, and you can play like contact sports in them. It's like, oh, that. yeah, I like they'll that. just be in their own individual bubbles. You get, you get those sumo suits where you kind yeah, of... Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You know, you're picking up what I'm putting down right now. That's what they're going to have to do. Uh, um, but yeah, I mean, I I don't... I mean, real talk, I don't think there's much appetite looking... Just reading the tea leaves to, like, lock down again. Like, I'm not seeing... And, like, nobody's talking no. about that. Even with, like, cases increasing in Arizona, Florida, Texas, and California, it's just not really happening. Houston's about the one place where they've said... Uh, both the university and the city itself. Hey, we're close to having to shut things down again. Uh, but basically everyone else, I mean, California continues to open things up as cases are increasing. So I think the political appetite, the public appetite for doing it, whether it's a good idea or a bad idea at this point, I don't, I, I just don't see it happening. Um, yeah. Barring absolute catastrophe, which, you know, knock on wood, obviously. Yeah. But now, so we're, this is on Tuesday, we're recording this. So we're just, you know, you're going to start getting word of what these workouts are like. Uh, everyone's going to have slightly different plans. We kind of went over some of the requirements, like, you know, the recommendations from the PAC 12. Uh, I believe, I, I think this was from the LA times or it might've been Wilner, excuse me. I forget which where I read it from, but um, so Washington, one of their plans is they've moved their weight equipment uh, onto the concourse level. So they've moved some of their weight equipment to spread it out so they would have better physical distancing. So I think everyone's going to have like sort of unique things that they can do on their campus to make the, you know, like if they have a whole bunch of benches next to each other, they move some to different levels, whatever they got to do to try to keep people distant. Uh, the pods thing is, is interesting. 
Um, how big are those at different places? And those kind of end up being your quarantine buddies. And those might be the people you eat dinner with. And it's just sort of like they'll, they're going to become your best friends on on the team. So I think there'll be some really cool stories coming out of this, like how everyone's working out and how it's going to to work for everyone, because it's definitely uh, it's different right now. And, and they're trying to figure out ways to do this. Uh, I know the Pac-12 is a little behind some of the other uh, conferences and stuff as far as bringing guys back, but I'm glad that it's happening now. Uh, we'll see with the California schools. And I don't know, a couple of weeks from now, we should know a heck of a lot more of, of if this is going to work or not. Yeah, absolutely. And it's going to be interesting to see if anybody else follows Houston into um, shutting things down again, uh, yeah. if they get a bunch of cases or if that was truly just a one off because they had a really bad plan in place. Yeah. And then they're like, we got to rethink this plan. Yeah. Uh, this <laughs> hey, was this, not this whole uh, no testing anybody plan. Not good. Didn't <laughs> didn't didn't go well. Let's not do that again. <laughs> There's one other little newsy note that I got. Um, so uh, the University of California's Board of Regents, they voted to remove the ACT and SAT as a requirement for admission. And uh, John Wilner wrote in his newsletter, over time, this should benefit Cal and UCLA. Anytime you remove a barrier to admission, it's a recruiting advantage. Any thoughts on that as a UC grad yourself? Love it. Um, I think those tests have some obvious flaws. Um, If you look at the history, and I mean, any test that you can prep for with money has some obvious flaws. Um, If you don't have money, then you don't have access to the same prep, notwithstanding all the other uh, very valid arguments that there's cultural bias built into the tests and various other things. So I think as a as a measure of equity, it's a good thing Um, for athletics. Specifically, it's a very good thing um, just because athletics, you're generally trying to draw from a pool that's going to have lower test scores um, and potentially lower GPAs. So um, all to the good, um, but I think it drastically inc- improves equity both in the general student body and um, in athletics. So I think it's a really good thing. And um, as as a playing field leveler for Cal and UCLA, especially, I think it's a good thing. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, it's one of those situations where there's these requirements, right, where you have to have this sort of score versus this sort of GPA. I don't know how that's going to go for admissions going forward when you just eliminate the test score, does that allow the player, you know, the, the potential, you know, recruit to come in at the very lowest potential GPA? Or are they going to make like an average for, GPA? Uh, for UCLA and Cal, I think they're still going to look at it. They're, they're still going to have to look at it because part of what what the conscientious admissions person is, even when they do take special cases, what they're looking for is can this person succeed at UCLA or can this person succeed at Cal? Like, can they do the work? So if it's somebody with like a 1.0 GPA and they scored the minimum on the SAT or didn't take it, then you've got to question whether they can actually succeed at the school because it doesn't behoove a football program to bring a guy in and then have him flunk out because that does damage to your APR and it doesn't do anything good for you because they can't play anyway. So you still have to hit that sweet spot. But there are guys I know of who UCLA had to go to major bat for to get into school who ended up getting on the honor roll um, at UCLA. Some guys, I mean, some people just aren't like motivated in high school. They don't have the best situation in high school, whatever it is. And then suddenly when they have access to world-class tutors, world-class uh, professors, all that kind of stuff, and actual, you know, daily kind of routine, daily, um, you know, prods to do X, do Y, do Z. 
um, and just kind of that structure, they suddenly start excelling. Um, so I think it's this is potentially a really good thing because it won't have this artificial barrier that does have built-in bias. I mean, the fact that people can take a prep class and demonstrably improve their scores proves that. If you've got a couple hundred bucks to pay for an SAT prep class, you can do better on the test. Well, what if you didn't have those couple hundred bucks? Then you don't do better on the test. Yeah. So and that's coming a simple, from a guy who's yeah. probably taught those tests before, I assume. I've I, taught, I, I taught the LSAT. Uh, yeah. The SAT, I taught a little bit. Um, but the LSAT, it's that's exactly what it is. Um, I feel a little bit more ethic. I feel ethically a little bit better about that just because they're all going to be blood-sucking lawyers, so whatever. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, but that was a complication for that, too, because you can – you basically can buy a better score um, because it is – the SAT is a game like it's you, you can crack that test. Um, the LSAT, I mean, one of the sections literally is games. It's logic games. You can crack that test. Um, and if you can do that with X amount of prep um, with a prep class with, you know, with the code to crack, um, then it's an unfair game because huh. certain people don't have access to that. So how many like underprivileged students do you think you sent away not being not allowing them to go to college because you helped more privileged kids get better scores? I only on so on the SAT, I only tutored I, I've only tutored a couple of kids on the SAT. It was mostly SAT two that I did um, okay. and it was SAT two history and the SAT two history. I'll tell you who takes the SAT two history. It's the people who have to take the SAT, too, because it used to be a UC requirement. I don't know if it is anymore. And they want to pick the easiest one. So, like, the pool I was working with, I don't know. I don't know how many of them I prevented from getting into college or how many other people were prevented from getting into college based on their scores. Because, frankly, if you're – I mean, I took the SAT, too, history. You, you you do that if you just really don't want to work too hard to take that test. <laughs> Nice. I was just teasing about that. But no, no, no. I, no, but it was like a, that is a it's it's a complication, I think. And I think the um, I mean, the reality is people are going to game any system that you put in place. So the goal is to try to unstandardize as much of that stuff as possible, because the truth the truth of the matter is, if the test can be prepped for um, people are going to crack it, charge money for it. And then you've got inequity just built in before you even get to the test itself which there are biases in the test. Um, So all of that stuff, my point is, it's good. We removed that barrier. Now it's more equity equity in the uh, general student body, and athletics will get improved at both Cal and UCLA. All right. Well, why don't we take a quick break? We got some questions to get to, Dave, uh, unless you have any other topics that you wanted to discuss. Should we, I mean, should we attack the Twitter thing now or should we get to that after the break? We'll do it after the break. We'll take, okay. you know, you can run to the bathroom. We'll be back in a minute and then we'll, uh, we got some Twitter stuff to get to and a lot of questions. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates – Price and coverage match limited by state law. 
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, we're back here on the podcast of Champions. Uh, Hope you guys had a great break. I had a wonderful break. I went to the beach with the family. (laughs) We spent a couple of weeks there. Uh, Yeah. I grew an even longer beard. So (laughs) things are going great. It's funny. I played beach volleyball the other day, which don't tell anyone because it's still illegal right now, but people are playing. You bring your own nets down. Um, This guy that I play with who kind of reminds me of you, this guy, Derek, has this awesome, awesome beard. I think he's like, I think he's a plumber or something. I don't know, but he's got this great beard. Really cool dude. Really mellow dude. Um, And uh, I haven't seen him for a while. I haven't seen him since the start of the, the coronavirus thing. And I see him down there on the beach this weekend and it was like almost clean shaven. Like he had a little bit of, you know, he'd like stubble. And I was like, oh my God, like he did the exact opposite. Like he had the reverse. I'm like, I grew a beard during the, I don't have it anymore, but uh, he, he shaved his off. Is that, is that so what, sacrilege? So what he, no, 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 no. Cause he's, he's growing his beard for a different reason. He grows his beard as a contrarian beard. Like he's uh, growing his beard when it's out. And then when everyone else is growing a beard, he's like, no. Now, now is the moment for me to prove that I can be clean shaven. Uh, mine is, and I've said this before, simple laziness. <laughs> I don't want to shave every day. I, my, my delicate skin just couldn't take it when I was a young fellow. And I'm just like, no, I'm not doing it. I will not do this daily task. I have enough trouble doing like the various other daily tasks that are absolutely essential. I'm not adding this one to the, to the queue. No way. Gotcha. All right, makes sense. Well, I just I thought of you when he had shaved his. Yeah, no, I re- yeah. I respect that too. Contrarian, yeah. just for contrarian's sake. I mean, I'm. It's not like I uh, don't do that too. Yeah. Uh, well, we got a tweet. Uh, if you remember, we started talking about. Um, uh, I think it was books on tape or whatever, uh, you know, and and you recommended that I get the Audible. Um, it's Audible. Yeah. Is that the, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Audible, Audible. app. Yeah. And uh, download Grant, which I'm I think about halfway through already so not Isn't bad it great week. it's really really good i have a so this is my first time listening to a book that you know i'm not reading just listening to it it's hard because you want to like do things like read your email but if you're reading your email and you listen to a book it's just it's you can only do you can only do activity you can you can walk while you're listening yeah. you can drive while you're listening you could probably even do more strenuous workouts but if you're having to move between different things then it can get distracting Washing dishes is a great thing to do while just anything that's kind of passive that occupies about 20% of your attention and your hands. Um, but you can't read anything else while you're listening. Right. Uh, so that's a mistake I've made a couple of times. I have to go back. Uh, I, I, I got a puzzle. I ordered a puzzle online. It took like two months to get here. So I've been kind of building the puzzle, but it, that's still a little more distracting than maybe you would want. Yeah, no, uh, it's because you're thinking while you're like, it's a little bit too much active thinking. You've got to have something that's like, you're almost on autopilot when you're doing it um, so that you can just kind of but it's it's distracting enough because the thing is, we all have ADD now because of our damn phones. Yeah. So you need to be doing something like you can't just sit and listen the way people probably were able to 40 years ago. Um, so you have to be doing something. But I, I go with walking, driving or washing dishes. OK, yeah, because if you're reading, you're sitting, read. 
Like I like doing that on the plane. I just like reading yeah, or whatever. Your hands but, are occupied. But for this, yeah, it's 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 been a little bit of adjustment. But I really like it. Um, it's been a great refresher on a lot of the, you know, history from you know the the mid eighteen hundreds or whatever, and the Civil War and all that kind of stuff. So uh, and talked about some of the presidents that we talked about with you, and uh, it was great. But anyway, we had talked about this a little bit last week. Webfoot uh, on Twitter said. Uh, tweeted us, and can you two rank Union generals during the Civil War? I'm partial to Sherman, but he probably didn't need to burn down every building in the South he laid eyes on. Uh, who was the best and who was the worst? You broke up a little bit. Oh, I did there? Sorry. Um, no, it's yeah. fine. It's not going to show up for you, the listener out there, but it shows up for me because we are on a faulty internet connection. Nice. But anyway, the best and worst... Um, Okay. U- Union generals. And I had some thoughts and I also had to, I looked some up to, on this, uh, blue and gray trail.com. So we can, I can read some more detail because most so, people probably don't have like the, all the union generals on the tip of their tongue. So the obvious answer, and I think the obvious answer is correct here. It's grant. Um, and the reason it's grant is for a couple reasons. First, um, you have to directly contrast his performance to the performance of literally everyone who came before and mainly his performance as the uh, general of the army of the Potomac, um, where technically he wasn't the commanding general of the army of the Potomac. That was still George Meade during the period where Grant was with the army of the East, but in de facto land, he was the the commanding general of the army Um, and his performance against Robert E. Lee, um, where he didn't mythologize, 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 word it feels like a word uh, <laughs> I think so he didn't like make him into this boogeyman thing and he just kind of methodically ground him down into dirt which was the entire thing that they needed to do probably from the very beginning of the war um when you know could they have won at bull run and just ended the thing immediately probably could mcclellan have been faster on the peninsula and ended it then in 1862 probably but by the time you got to 1863, the only way it was going to happen was if you just kind of ground them down. Um, Grant understood that. Um, he understood that strategically the whole thing had to work in concert. Um, the West and the East had to be pressing at the same moments. They had to be pressing on the same pressure points. Um, and they had to kind of do what was originally Winfield Scott's strategy, which was the Anaconda where you've got the Navy, you've got the armies all working in concert to just slowly squeeze the life out of the Confederacy. So, I would say as a strategic general, which is the common thing where people talk about Grant, oh, strategically he got it. Um, I think he was obviously had a better understanding of things than anyone else on the Union side. And even tactically, I think um, he's underrated Um, with the advantage of numbers and all of that. He still wasn't like broad. I think he gets a lot of um, derision for things that were somewhat outside of his control. Um, like the Battle of the Crater, um, that was major mistakes under Grant um, to basically take out the black troops that had been trained for that assignment and yeah. just throw in some white troops who had no training for it. Or maybe but the, the funny, the funny thing um, about that though, there was a PC reason for doing it because they didn't want to look like, oh, we're just they throwing, were throwing the black them into the slaughter. <laughs> right, but, but those are the ones that were trained to do that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and so instead of running along the rims of the crater after blowing this huge hole in the Confederate lines. They run directly into it, and it's a slaughterhouse. Um, yeah. And so Grant gets a lot of uh, lot of derision for uh, basically being just this slaughter mad general. But um, I think it's not really borne out when you look at things. Um, certainly, 
a lot of guys died when he tried to get a little too aggressive um, in the siege at Petersburg. But um, I, I think uh, he, he doesn't get nearly enough credit, especially for what he did in the West as a tactician. So I think it's Grant um, is number one. Uh, yeah, Grant to me. And then he wanted to strike fast. He didn't feel like it, w- it was better to strike now and don't let your opponent, you know, it's, it's basically like uh, a good plan were... now is better than a great plan in three weeks. Is, right. That was Grant's. And that's been the operating philosophy for most um, most armies up until modern war, which is like an entirely different thing. But like through World War Two, through Vietnam War, like that was that's been the operating philosophy. And Grant was one of the forebears of that. Yeah. And like, so it's like, it's the end of a game and a, you know, NBA game. And like, do you rather call timeout and let them set up their defense? Or do you want to just press forward and, you know, let LeBron, you know, create something and the defense doesn't really know what to expect in it. And it seems like he had some missteps for sure. There were some blunders, but a lot of it, like you mentioned, seemed to be underlings that didn't like, Hey, I'm telling you to do this for a specific reason. And then so a general under him wouldn't do it because they were thinking in a different way. But if you looked at the big picture that Grant was looking at, it would make sense. We're going to have you tack this quickly. We're gonna, we need you to take this. And it seemed like he was playing chess a lot of times where other people were, you know, were playing checkers. So I, yeah, him, I mean, Sherman was great, but like, it was hard. To, I think it would be hard to beat Grant for, for yeah. my money. And Sherman's really good. Um, the other contenders, and I think they're not really contenders for the top spots, but other guys to shout out. Uh, George Thomas, um, out west, he was good. Uh, Phil Sheridan, uh, cavalry guy, he was really good. Um, some various division and core guys. Got a shout out Winfield Scott Hancock, great name. Um, uh, John Reynolds, good, good general. Um, so, but the union was kind of bereft of like really good ones. And the more interesting conversation is who was the worst? Yeah, because Grant, I think, is the obvious best. Um, I, just for obvious reasons, I don't think you need to go too deeply to know that Grant was the best. But the worst, that gets into some really interesting stuff. Because See, what, your answer was probably McClellan. I said George McClellan. And just because what I loved about Grant, he was sort of the antithesis of that, where he was like paralysis by over analysis. He would just freeze during any kind of tactical command and then just it just seemed that everything would blow up. So to me, and he was c- controlling more, you know, bigger armies. I think there was other people you could argue against, you know, that were worse than him. But it just it seemed like the exact opposite of Grant's take. And it just always didn't work well. Plus, he was doing all this political crap behind the scenes. Um, you know, it, to me, he was just he was probably the most damaging. Like if you had replaced him, I think you would have probably had a lot better results. Just that's the way I kind of looked at it. It's it's a tragedy that he was the um, general in charge at the Peninsula Battles and at Antietam. Um, that's a tragedy because the war could have been over at either point. But you have to acknowledge that the Army of the Potomac that Meade inherited and then Grant was working with was largely built by McClellan, drilled, trained, the morale I mean, for that army to suffer defeat after defeat after defeat, largely because of generalship and to still be a cohesive fighting force with really high morale in 1863. After, like, if if you go look at the details of the Battle of Chancellorsville, it's something like the Union had a hundred and some odd thousand men and Lee didn't even have one of his corps. So he was down to something like 40 or 50,000 men and they lose decisively. The Union loses decisively. Um, to go from that to just whipping Lee's ass at Gettysburg, like, 
two short months later. I mean, that's tremendous morale. And a lot of, I think, the credit for that, um, instilling that in the troops. I mean, McClellan was still beloved by the troops well into 1864 when he hadn't been their general in two years. Um, And I think a big part of that was, first, he trained them well. And second, I think they did like that he didn't send them into massacres like my pick for the worst of the bunch. Well, one, one quick thing, one quick thing on McClellan though. He had, he had a chance to get to Richmond, right? Like it was a Yorktown. I think he was fighting like 13,000 Confederates and he had like 60,000 guys. They were within sight of Richmond. But and he was even, convinced by wooden canyon cannons that <laughs> there were a lot more guys there. He retreated. <laughs> what the hell? You got to understand they, they did the whole painted wooden cannons trick. Okay. That's a tough one to deal with, man. That, that's just, I mean, that to me is just like when, you know, you have that superior force. But OK, go ahead. I'm sorry. I mean, that, that's why he was my pick. But well, he, I mean, he was a bad, bad, bad battle general, um, but a good training one. Like he would have been a great peacetime general to okay. get everybody geared up for war. Um, but I don't think you can completely throw that away just because he really sucked at winning battles. Yeah. Um, my pick is Ambrose Burnside who was a fine enough division general um, and then basically led the Union into just a mass slaughter at Fredericksburg, um, where I, I don't know if I can draw this visual, like just draw the picture for you with just my words. But if you go to Fredericksburg, the heights that they were trying to I, I like went there a uh, few summers ago, the heights that they were trying to march into are like well above where they're walking to. And there's a literal brick wall there where guys can literally kneel down behind it and shoot you the entire way up. (laughs) Like you're trying to basically climb a, it's not a huge hill, but you're trying to climb a hill while people are shooting down at you from behind a brick wall where you can't really hit them. And he just led like column after column after column of union troops into it. Just a mass slaughter. Um, Absolutely devastating. Uh, McClellan never did anything like that. I'm a big, you know, human life. It's a good thing. Let's try to keep as many of that going as possible. Uh, McClellan was never doing any of that. Maybe he prolonged the war. Maybe if you think abstractly, he caused more death. But Burnside, like, very literally just sent men to their death straight up a hill for no discernible strategic purpose. He's my pick. Um, According to the uh, Blue and Gray Trail... Uh, he also they they also said that Abraham Lincoln asked him twice to take command of the Army of the Potomac, and twice Burnside refused. Uh, and they say, in all fairness, Burnside knew he would not be a very good overall commander. Um, so, yeah, I think the third time he took command, that's that was the the massive loss at Fredericksburg. So uh, maybe he knew something. He was like, Nah, I don't think I want to do that. So uh, maybe his instincts were good that he shouldn't have done it, but he did it anyway. Yeah, another one that would be pretty bad that's worth mentioning, um, and and this was brought up, Joe Hooker, who was the general at the Battle of Chancellorsville, but there was a mitigating circumstance there. Um, Just basically at the start of things going horrifically wrong, uh, a cannon shot a ball that went off like three feet from where Hooker was standing. And the modern consideration now is that he was heavily and severely concussed by that. And he never relinquished command, but he was not oh. operating with all of his faculties. So mitigating circumstance, but that keeps him out of the bottom two for me. Okay. Uh, what about Benjamin Butler? 
They uh, listed him pretty high on this. They said he was a powerful politician who became the Union General after successfully uh, relieving Washington, D.C., following the bombardment of Fort Sumter. Uh, he was ordered to assume command of the, quote, Department of the West, uh, Union gains around New Orleans. So his dictator-style military government of New Orleans showed no respect for non-combatants, relieved of duty by Lincoln. He was eventually given command of the Army of the James, landing his 40,000 men at uh, Bermuda 100 and City Point. Butler was turned back by Beauregard uh, and an army at an, and an army never exceeding 13,000 men, um, a good deal of whom were irregulars. So he was removed from command in uh, 1865. Yeah, so I've got a soft spot for Butler because he was really good on um, the slave question. Um, basically, he was the one who <laughs> more or less had had. Uh, he was basically once from the beginning when slaves were escaping from their plantations, he was the one who wasn't giving them back at all, um, okay. which was not necessarily standing policy for the Union Army, especially at the beginning of things. So I've got a soft spot for him on that. I think he was properly dictatorial in New Orleans. Um, so I don't think that was a bad thing. Um, not necessarily anyway. Um, he was a horrible general, um, but I've got a soft spot for him. So he doesn't make my bottom two, but if you want to have him in your as your number as your like absolute one, uh, that's fine because a big reason the war didn't end in 1864 was because of Butler's um, inability also to march up the peninsula. Okay. Um, well, anyway, so good stuff there. Thanks for the question. Um, oh, th- this website has Gideon Pillow from from the Confederate side is the worst overall. Um, but the I think that might be a Confederate slanted site. Oh, is it? I would guess so. Oh, well, they've got Butler, but they've got Butler number two. And the like number two reason is because of his dictatorial style in New Orleans. Okay. I don't know. I just, yeah, yeah. This is Georgia's blue and gray trail presents American civil war. Oh, we'll see. I I went for your home state. I don't know. I I just wanted to get some data. No, no, I like it. I like it. Um, I wouldn't Uh, have thought of Butler, but that's it. Butler is a fair, he's a fair pick. Um, I just wouldn't do it because uh, he had obvious uh, good qualities. We don't want to go on this too much, but like listening to the book, you know, and you know how bad of a president Andrew Johnson was. And it's just amazing to have him be the vice president for a guy like Abraham Lincoln. But some of the policies he was in where he was really trying to stunt reconstruction and all that. And it seemed like his terrible policies sort of allowed things like the KKK and everyone to like to spring up and, you just wonder if he wasn't around, if it was just more Lincoln or went Lincoln to Grant and there was a smoother reconstruction, if we wouldn't even be dealing with some of the problems we're dealing with today. If we, that, that oh, seems it, like it set racism back, you know, like it's decades a big, if more. It's a big what if. I think there's two things that, so first, if, if Lincoln doesn't get shot, um, reconstruction might go an entirely different way. It might, he might, he might be able to convince um, the Southern states that he's going to do things in a just way, whatever that means. Um, But it might not be as, I think there was an initial distrust of anything that was coming from Washington in the Southern states. Um, And I don't think Johnson's just kind of instability more than even like his policies. I mean, he was just a kind of a crazy dude too. Yeah. Um, but I think if there'd been that kind of stability in Washington and, um, you know, Lincoln, his words in the uh, second inaugural, um, you know, with malice towards none, with charity for all, blah, blah, blah. 
um, maybe that message comes across harder and they're able to get what needs to be done done without um, without completely alienating a bunch of people. Um, I don't know if that's true, though. Um, for my money, I think the main issue was that Reconstruction did, wasn't planned for and didn't last long enough. Um, I think if Lincoln had, you know, done a smooth handoff to Grant, it would have gone better. Um, but I think also they allowed the Southern states back in too quickly. Um, and I think you can make an argument, um, that whatever happened in the war, um, the South did to an extent win the peace. Um, the, the fact that the KKK did get ensconced and Grant did a good job against it, but then it came back again. Uh, the fact that, you know, despite the 13th through 15th amendments, um, black people still didn't really, weren't really able to vote until, you know, deep into the 1900s. Um, that there were, there was required an entirely new voting rights act to make it happen. Um, you know, all the civil rights acts of the 1960s and 1950s, um, to get what should have been done in the 1860s done. Um, so I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, a lot of what we learned about reconstruction, I think is fundamentally wrong. Um, and I think the, that book actually does a pretty good job of it. Um, especially detailing Grant's role and actually doing a pretty good job. Um, but, uh, I think fundamentally it should have lasted longer um, and it should have taken longer for the South to get back in um, strictly because they needed to figure out a way to make it so that um, black people could live safely and participate as full citizens in the society. And that just was not the case yet in 1876. Yeah. It's so funny too, listening to like the, so who are the people that are you're pushing for, uh, you know, African-Americans to be able to vote and, and join the army, all that stuff. It's the radical Republicans. Like that's, that's oh, yeah. people. It's great. Well, and they yeah, still got the conservative, like fiscal stuff, but they were the ones pushing the more social issues at the time. Yeah. It's it, the things that the flip. Um, so the, the democratic flip to being more the party of like, I don't know. I mean, the left-right distinction doesn't make much sense when you get further back into history, but basically the two parties flipped sometime in the 1920s, um, or maybe even a little bit earlier than that, 1910s, um, right around when it was they were doing all the monopoly and trust busting on the Republican side, and then it kind of just moved over. Um, basically the Roosevelts. Between the Roosevelts, something happened. Um, and then uh, it's just kind of pushed along since then and the divide has kind of widened i think to an extent um but yeah no it it's flipped a couple of times there's these kind of realignments that happen um you know there's a lot of if you go back and look at the mid 90s just you know 25 years ago a huge number of southern democrats because it was a big thing for the longest time there was this new deal coalition is what it was called which was just basically everybody. Um, but there were a lot of these old time Southern white Democrats who were basically what we would think of as modern, moderate Republicans who all flipped over in the mid nineties. Um, cause they were just, this is more of our alignment now, but that all happened between the eighties and nineties too. Yeah. So it all, it all shifts. Good stuff. Your history lesson of the day here on the podcast of champions. Uh, yeah, cause I can't, I'll, hopefully by next uh, show, I'll have the book finished. So it's good stuff. It's great. Um, well, should we jump into questions? Let's do it, Ryan. 
Uh, you want right. to start? I think we got sour fruit as the start. Would you like to start or you want me to I start? I would love to. Um, okay. Sour fruit. This is from Dizzy in Utah. If I may be allowed to beat a dead horse, I'm wondering if Dave's inexplicable defense of the Red Delicious comes from a deep-seated counterculture streak in his reaction to the legendary 2014 article in The Atlantic, The Awful Reign of the Red Delicious. <laughs> it must have cut deep when Dave sat down to finger through his newly delivered periodicals in 2014 when he read gems like It Lurks in Desolation, Left Untouched on Hospital Trays, Forlorn in the Fruit Bowl Hotel Breakfast Buffets, Bereft in Nests of Gift Basket Raffia. And Jeez. how did such an unlikable apple become the most ubiquitous in the country? And as its dominion here ends, where will it invade next? I'm not surprised Dave has a soft spot for the Chip Kelly of apples, but I am surprised he's held a grudge this long because his favorite publication dispersed his favorite fruit. Wow, that was a sick burn on many levels. That was so good. And I, I, I can't believe they, all those those uh, big words about red delicious apples. Like, that, you know, crazy. I, I'm just saying they're fine. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. They're fine. And this 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 animosity towards the Red Delicious, it's overblown. Does it come from this Atlantic article from 2014? Maybe. Who knows? But it's got to end. It's sort of like Sideways and Merlot. So this article was like the Sideways for Merlot. I think it must have been. I think it must have. That's a movie, right? Sideways? Is that right? I think that's the one with Paul Giamatti. Yeah. Yeah. I believe that was. Uh, That was a pretty good movie, though. Okay, this one. Oh, we got our old friend back. Hugh Janus, uh, UCLA class of 82. Hey, Ryder Dave. He's, he's got a lot of words here, too. It's your old pal, Hugh Janus. I know it's been a while since I wrote, uh, but it's great to be back. I hope you're both COVID-free and doing well these days. So I was having my annual off-season chat about college football with my good pals, Howie Felterstash and Jenny Tellia and Herb Eversmalls. Is that how he's? Ever smells. Ever smells. Okay. Ever smells. Gotcha. Um, yeah, just these don't entertain me, Hugh. Uh, <laughs> the, the first conclusion we came to was in regard to last week's question about the Pac-12 coaches and who they equate to as a former president. Dave seemed stump on Chip Kelly, uh, but to answer the answer is obvious. It's George W. Bush. Didn't we have someone else for George W. Bush? I think we did, and it was good. It was. I was going to like do a little thing on the presidents and that, and I, I just never did. Was it Durrell? No. Uh, shoot. It might have been. I don't yeah, know. Uh, well, okay, it, Chip it was Kelly good. is George W. Bush. Let's see the justification. Okay, just like Chip Kelly took over a successful and smooth-running uh, program at Oregon from Mike Bellotti, W. inherited a strong economy and good times from uh, from Bill Clinton. Uh, then shortly after taking charge, they both got off to a great start. Oregon reaching new heights with multiple 12-win seasons and Bush hitting incredible approval ratings as high as 90% with his early handling of 9-11. But after reaching those heights, both began a slow downward spiral with just a few bumps up bumps up during their careers over time. W's approval rating eventually dipped all the way down into the 20s and Chip sunk to winning only seven games over two seasons at UCLA. In both cases, what seemed like greatness at the beginning eventually proved to be fool's gold. Check out this link for reference. Uh, so that's we're not going to do that because we can't read that on a podcast. But he, <laughs> it's a Gallup poll, I believe. Yeah, it's just so. a Gallup poll. So I guess if you're going by purely statistical approval ratings, I, I can see it. Um, hard time with that one. 
I don't think Bush was ever at the success level of Chip Kelly um, before dropping down to the low level of UCLA. I will I will acknowledge fully that W and the Iraq War and everything in between, that's certainly Chip Kelly at UCLA levels. I just don't know if the early part of W really equates well to what was going on at Oregon. Maybe maybe his stint as the owner of the Texas Rangers? Let's see. How was Bush as an owner? Uh did we say Jonathan Smith was George W. Bush? I forget. I forget. We we had a brilliant we had some brilliant answers. Just go back and listen. Um, but don't take one of the presidents that we already used because I think okay, we already so, used. Okay, so all right, so Bush was the owner from eighty five to ninety four, I think. Is that right? No clue. Mm. I'm, I'm assuming. Oh no no so eighty nine to ninety eight. So I'm gonna look up the Texas Rangers record in that time. Hang on. This is important. We do need this. And this makes for great, great podcasting. podcasting. Yeah. 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 We like it. Whatever the record is during the ownership, I'm sure that's completely reflected on George W. Bush, too. <laughs> As it should be, right? <laughs> um, okay. Hang on. Hang on. I want seasons. I want. He also has 10 questions. Okay. Ten. Let's just get to those. I can't do this. Okay. Uh, the Rangers were never good, so I don't think this works. We'll have to we'll okay. have to keep working on Chip Kelly. We'll we'll do that. Uh, do you think that uh, the new UCLA athletic director Martin Jarman is a good choice? Yes, All right. as much as anyone is a good choice. But yeah, I think he's a good choice. We'll see how it works out. But uh, he's saying and doing all the right things so far, and yeah. he's got a good resume. I agree. Uh, number two, Will Hithliday, and he p question mark. It's completely butchered as far as spelling goes. Uh, come up with better questions this week. Last week was pretty bad for him. Uh, we'll see. I think we have his question coming up in the next one or two. And we certainly didn't read it ahead of time. No. Uh, how many games does SUC have to win this year for, quote, Gomer Helton to retain his job for next season? Four. Uh, no, I would go. I think it's got to be like 11. Four. Like literally, he's got to win the Pac-12. And uh, I think with four, um, given given the state of the roster, given how difficult that <laughs> schedule is, I think there I think there's going to be a lot of excitement in Trojan Land um, for the future uh, because four wins against that schedule with this bereft roster, I think, um, yeah, I think there's there's good times ahead. Yeah, I agree with you there. Okay, uh, please share your thoughts on SUC reinstating Reggie Bush. Uh, yeah, that's that was just stupid. Like. The NCAA just completely botched that. So 10 years away from the program. And that's only because they changed the rule. It was going to be forever. Like in perpetuity, it was going to have to stay away. So that just was silly to me. Yeah, it's good. Um, and like whenever you can, you know, reinstate a guy who was, I think, easily a top 100 player in the last 20 years, maybe top 200. I don't know. Um, <laughs> anytime you can reinstate that sort of thing, I think that's a good that's a good thing that you're doing. Um, uh, yeah. Is it sad that he was only the second best running back in LA during his time in school, uh, second best college running back in LA during his time in school? Yeah. Um, but he still won a Heisman because the voters don't really, you know, watch. Um, but that's fine. He was, he was good. He was a nice player. I liked watching him. Yeah. Um, yeah. We, I think this was a Twitter thing, right? Like you, or you texted me. I don't know if it was a tweet or something. You texted it was, me. It, it was, was a tweet and a text. I, I okay. couldn't leave that shade alone on Twitter. I had to actually send it to you directly. Right. 
And I said, so you said he was the second best running back in LA and there was no, there was no Rams. There was no chargers. There was no Raiders at the time. So I said, did you mean Lendale? And he's like, Oh, that means he's third. Cause Lendale white actually does lead. You know, he had 52 touchdowns in his career. Oh, at USC. I think, I think Pete Carroll could make an argument that Lendale white is better than Reggie Bush. Cause he, you know, used him in that critical moment as he we did. all remember. And, and would uh, he have done that if he thought Reggie Bush was better than Lendale white? I think not, not, sir. I think not. But I think those two guys were far and away better than anyone else that was in the city. I don't know who else would you would even put well, in the same I, category. So, so I, I can understand why you might have missed it. Um, <laughs> but there's a there's a fellow at UCLA running behind, I think, me and you on the offensive line <laughs> named Maurice Jones-Drew, who was doing that while also returning punts and, like, just scoring touchdowns. Like, he would, he would be tackled by, like, seven guys because special teams blocking, also not a thing UCLA was a fan of. Like, if you go watch – go back and watch, like, Reggie Bush's punt returns where he's got, like, nobody. Like, nobody around him because they've got, like, starting linebackers just knocking dudes down on special teams. And then go back and watch Maurice Jones-Drew just emerge from a cloud of people. Like, just catch a ball while getting hit and then return it for a touchdown. Dude was incredible. Also, he was, like, 5'5". Five, five. He was as about as wide as he was tall. He was the most astonishing human being I think I've ever seen in person. His thighs were as big as your entire torso. A single thigh, your torso. <laughs> Incredible person. Maurice Jones-Drew. Be... Like Reggie Bush, if you go see Reggie Bush, he's just another guy. Like he's just a guy. He looks like just a guy. He looks like wide receiver, which is what he should have been. He looks like a guy. <laughs> Maurice Jones-Drew, that's, that's an otherworldly, otherworldly human. Um, it'd be funny to do, we should do some content, like getting, talking to like UCLA people and, and USC people about what makes each of those players special and put some highlights together. That'd be good. You know, that would take if work. You put, if you put Maurice, Maurice Drew on USC during that era, he would have broken 3000 yards, like in a season. What wow. happened? Incredible player. What did, uh, you saw any... biased? Maybe who cares? I saw him beat up Cal by himself. It was fun. Did, uh, what were the UCLA teams like in that, like, 2003, uh, mostly, 4? Mostly dog shit. Uh, okay. 2005, they were bad, but they went 10-2. and two. It was that weird year. I don't know if you're paying much attention, but they were down by, like, three touchdowns several times and came back to win. Yeah, yeah, okay. They, they eventually lost to, like, a 2-9 and nine Arizona team um, when they were, like, 9-0. and oh. um, <laughs> But, yeah, no, that was it was a bad UCLA team that somehow – Pulled it out basically because they had Maurice Drew, Mercedes Lewis, and senior Drew Olson. Um, and those three guys playing offense at the end of the games was enough to just come back all the time. Uh, but no, they were bad teams. The offensive lines were not good. Um, and uh, for Maurice, Maurice Jones Drew, like legitimately, I think if you'd put him on USC, it would have been, he would have been in contention for Heisman. I don't yeah. know if he would have put up Bush's numbers because I don't know if he would have uh, played as much. Um, as Bush did, but man, that guy was good. Yeah. Uh, number five, will UCLA make a bowl game this coming season? No. No. Six, uh, was most of David Shaw's success at Stanford a product of the foundation laid by Jim Harbaugh in reality? Uh, is he a mediocre coach? No. I mean, I think a big part of it was, but I don't think most. Um, I think some things have gone wrong recently, but he had four really, really good years right after Harbaugh. Um, and I don't think you can say all four of those years were because of Jim Harbaugh. Um, I would say, uh, what was it? When did he take over? 2011? 
I think it was 2011. Let me see. Uh, yeah, I believe so. I believe that was right. Let me just pull it up. Because 2011, I think, was one of, was probably the best year for the... Yeah, so 2011, they went 11 and 2. 2012, they went 12 and 2. Um, and then they went 12 and 2 again in 2015, um, which that team, if you remember, was a weird loss to Northwestern from being in the mix at the very end. Yeah, like a 9 a.m. East Coast yeah. loss or whatever. Weird yeah. opening loss. Um, so, no, I don't think it was just a product of Harbaugh. I think it helped. Um, I just think some things have gone wrong. Um, I think recruiting, there have been some mistakes in who they've targeted in certain years. They, it seemed like they went like three straight years with basically one good defensive lineman each year, and that's it. Yeah. Like Solomon Thomas, and if Solomon Thomas goes down, oh, sorry, you're playing a defensive back at defensive tackle now. That's just the rules. Um, and I think they went way too long without prioritizing the defensive line. I think offensive line development hasn't been good in a few years. Um, guys just don't seem to be getting better. Like the fact that they weren't able to run the ball last year, despite um, all that talent they've stocked up there, just makes me think development's been bad. Like, it was just a couple of years ago when they got the two best tackles in the country, Walker Little and Foster Sorrell. And what do they have to show for that? Um and I think uh, maybe a lack of innovation upon their base scheme, um, even within the style of ground and pound or whatever you want to call what they do, that ogre style, you've got to have innovation. And I think they've just gotten simply too predictable. I think teams know what they're going to do at all times. And I know that's part of the brand for Shaw. But even beyond that branding, you still have to innovate on top of that. And I don't think innovation is simply running the wildcat. Um, I think they've got to do more. I think they've broken away from their brand, which probably isn't a good thing in the long run. Um, but I think it was a response to that. But I hope they can build more within their, you know, their philosophy, that brutality thing, um, but actually innovate more. Um, and uh, we'll see if they're able to. I mean, I think Shaw is going to get at least another year and probably a couple more um, to see if he can get this fixed. Yeah, I would say it's not mostly for, you know, a product of Harbaugh's success. And he's better than a mediocre coach, but I think he's really struggled to make adjustments and he's been very stubborn. And sometimes coaches are like that to go what four and eight and not change anything. That's just, that's just a recipe for disaster. So I think that's a, he's made some big mistakes. I think um, when things haven't worked out, he hasn't, he hasn't been able to make adjustments and it's just, and I, there's really no pressure on him. Like RJ Abadia said, like they would never fire him. So He's not feeling pressure to make changes and which maybe is a good thing that you're not making changes for outside reasons. But when you're four and eight, like you got to, there's, there's gotta be reasons to justify some changes and uh, he hasn't found them yet. Yep. Seven, which teams win more games this season, Oregon state or Washington state? Hmm. Mm. I might go OSU. Let me look at respective schedules. Hang on. All right. Oregon State has... They have one tougher game, I think. They have an out-of-conference tougher one. Yes, they've got to go Oklahoma State. They get Colorado State at home and Portland State at home. So I think two and one. Um, They get Washington State at home, which is critical. Um, They avoid Colorado, which isn't great. But USC, which is great. And they get UCLA at home. Um, I could say Oregon State could probably go six and six. Yeah, because they get UCLA and Arizona at home. I think those are two wins. They get Washington State at home and Cal at home, which Cal will be tough. Washington State will be tough, but I think they could get out one in there. 
And then they just got to win one weird one at ASU, at Washington, at Stanford, at Utah, or Oregon at home. I just think because Washington State, if they're one of those programs like Washington, like uh, Colorado, that you're just going to be behind the eight ball with a new coaching staff and really no time to get ready. So Yeah, I'll go with continuity here. I'll go Oregon State. Yeah. Uh, eight, does Keaton Slovis have a realistic chance at the Heisman this year? Eh, I mean, I think he's got a chance to make New York. I don't know if he's got a chance to win, but he did it well enough last year. I just don't think USC is going to win enough games for him to be the winner, but he could put up some like ridiculous numbers if he stays healthy to like get him in the room. But someone on, you know, on a championship team is going to probably win it. And that's probably not going to be USC. I mean, if USC goes five and seven against that schedule, um, I think you could make a claim that Slovis is the most valuable player in the country. Yeah. Very Chase Garbersy. Yeah. I mean, that's a devastating schedule. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think, uh, you know, Slovis certainly put up numbers last year. But, I mean, go look at the ridiculous numbers that the typical Heisman winner is putting up. He's still a ways away from that. Uh, but come back to me when he's a junior. Yeah. Without Especially question- if he's still in this scheme. Yes. Uh, without question, Ralphie is the best mascot in the conference. Who is second best and why? Oh, the stupid tree? Mm, I mean, you could you could say that. You could say it ironically. Um, uh, the duck? I mean, the duck's got the most publicity. Um, the stupid dude with the sword and the, the, the horse? See, he's not, it's not really like the bat. Well, I guess it kind of is. I mean, Traveler's great. Like, there's a lot of history there, but I wouldn't, if you're looking at like the Trojan, like he's, I don't know if you consider him the mascot. He's, well, I guess so. I don't know. But, um, you know, the Cal uh, Bears that are like the old school um, 23 Skidoo uniforms, <laughs> those are good. The, yeah. the, the Sun Devil, I mean, that's pretty badass. Uh, I don't know. Do I'll go with the duck. I'll go with the duck. All right. Hey, Benny, the beaver, he's pretty good too. Uh, and the husky is very cute. Like, I like the husky. We could, uh, you get the coog. Washington State Cougars. Like the cool cougar. There's some good, like, I just think there's one clear winner and then everyone else is pretty good, you know? Yeah, I'll go with the stupid duck. Okay. <laughs> and then who do you see as the conference, quote, breakout star on offense and on defense this season? Thanks as always. Keep up the great work. FSC and go Bruins. Love I'm you, glad he saved. I'm glad he saved that for last because I have no friggin' idea. Yeah, breakout star on offense. I mean, I mean, Slovis could be, like, USC's offense is going to be good. So it could be like an Amon Ross St. Brown or Slovis. Uh, I think you, got, you could have Jaden Daniels uh, at Arizona State for sure. Um, but these guys are already good. No, like, but they were like I, freshmen. Like they're not, you know. But they're already good. Like Slovis threw thirty touchdowns last year. Jaden Daniels was acknowledged to be great. I mean, it's but they were like freshmen, and now they're gonna have like their breakout years. I don't know. Or, you were you were talking about someone that comes from obscurity, like out well, of that's nowhere. That's the thing is, I take this as it comes from obscurity, and if they're in obscurity, like by definition, because we're we're idiots, we don't know. We're not gonna know that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, uh, Hugh. All right. This is from Frank in Sacramento. Dr. Fauci says so. I like your recent reference to COVID-19 being spread by sexual activity and the related face-to-face contact. Now, some of us guys have the perfect line. 
Honey, I know you don't enjoy doggy style, but Dr. Fauci says so. <laughs> Thanks, Frank. Thanks. That's a good visual to put in our brains. Have you have you heard anything more about that as far as like it doesn't pass, you know, tradition sexually, but it does pass when you kiss somebody? Have you have you seen that again or heard that anymore? No, I haven't. I haven't heard a okay. thing about that. Um, all right, we got Hitler Day. Lamare. So this that... was a mare, a, a, a horse owned by King Arthur. Oh. You know what? I th- thinking about the uh, the the Grant book. So Lamare is a, a a horse by King Arthur. I forgot about this controversy. So USC, you know, the the horse is Traveler. It's been Traveler for for years. Well, Robert E. Lee's horse was named Traveler. And there were people that wanted USC to change the name of the horse because it was the same name as as a horse that Robert E. Lee had. I don't think the name came from, you know, Confederate uh, whatever you know, sources, but there was some controversy about that before. I mean, it probably did. Come on. Yeah, there was, you know, the Southern California is big in the Confederacy. That's what I'm um, saying. <laughs> all right. So review, reviewing Colorado's roster, I think they have the personnel for an old fashioned, quote, run and stop the run approach with a lot of play action and two tight end sets in 2020. Oh, it totally was. I just looked it up. So, Traveler, in a L.A. Times thing in 1992, uh, Sacco's first horse was half Arabian, half Tennessee Walker, and was named Traveler 1 after the horse of Civil War General Robert E. Lee. Oh, it was that. Okay. It was. Oh, it was. So they should change the damn name. So it was a Tennessee. Oh, because it was a Tennessee breed or something. Yeah, you know what they should should rename it? Sherman. Sherman's march to the torch, like he could yeah, just no, run it, out of the. It, yeah, I'll, I'll vote the, for Traveler if, if his new name is Sherman's March to the Sea. Yeah, I, I you know I probably knew that at some point, but of course, as uh, one of our reviewers said, the the memory of a goldfish. Um, interesting, yeah. So yeah, the Sherman, Sherman the the white horse. I like that. Uh, it, you could get yeah, what was Grant's? Grant had a cool some cool horse names. Yeah, um, he was a great horseman. Yeah, he was really good at that stuff. It was funny. Yeah. Uh, they're pretty well stocked with skill position players, including several very efficient running backs, a deep and experienced offensive line at long last, and a pretty stout interior defense. There are two big questions about whether they'll be able to do that, and they both depend on the coach, Carl Durrell. First, Colorado has a tough choice at quarterback, the junior with some game experience or the more talented true freshman with a live arm. Who do you bet Durrell goes with? He doesn't even my, name them. <laughs> yeah, my 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 gut instinct is that he'll go with the one who has experience. Yeah, um, that's riding with the Carl Durrell I know. Generally, a conservative fellow. That being said, it has been 13 years since he was a head coach. Um, several years since he was an offensive coordinator at Vanderbilt. Uh, maybe he's learned some stuff. Maybe he'll go with talent. We'll see. Um, but if I had to bet right now, uh, he's pretty much going to pick experience at every spot. Yeah, I would. That would be my guess too. We got to talk to, uh, especially up. because he didn't have a spring ball. I think we've right. got to keep that in mind for Durrell and Rolovich to an extent up in Washington State. Um, Durrell wasn't really able to install his schemes in spring, which is something that most new coaches are counting on. Um, right. So there might be a lot where he's just basically playing last year's guys because he just doesn't. He doesn't even really have his stuff installed yet, and so they're playing with last year's stuff too. Um, so. I would just keep all that in mind when you're assessing Colorado this year. Yep. 
And then second, the once and future offensive coordinator, De- Darren Shaverini, ran a fairly different Texas Tech-style offense the last time he had the reins in Boulder, and it went pretty poorly. Do you boys suppose uh, Darrell will hand it over to, entirely to him, or is he the kind of head coach who will insist on reevaluation of what talent they have? This will, uh, same thing I was saying before. I think uh, this first year, I don't know. I think in the future, yeah, I think you've got the right instinct. I think he will, because also Darrell is an offensive-oriented coach. Um, that is his background. So I don't think he's just going to give full reign to a coach who also his his previous experiences, the OC, didn't go that well. I don't think he's going to give him free reign. I don't think he'll give him free reign this year, but I think there's going to be a little bit more leeway in what they're actually running um, because he's I have to imagine and I could be wrong on how long it takes to install this stuff and get good at it. But I have to imagine that they're going to try to win as many games as they can this year, running something that's a little bit familiar for the guys. Yeah. Uh, just because it does feel like it's kind of a lost year and it might be a lost year in ways that we're not predicting yet too. Um, you know, there might be just a handful of games before it gets called again in October. We can't predict the future. It's just tough at this point. I mean, that you're any of the new coaches are just going to be to me at a much bigger disadvantage. That's part of the reason why I said Oregon state would win more games than Washington state. We just don't know. And uh, I, I think they're going to scramble to try to get guys as ready as you possibly can. But Having that spring football and getting the install in and then being able to kind of go over it for the rest of the summer with your your workouts, uh, you know, the player only workouts and those kind of things. Man, it's just you're just missing a lot. And, you know, Zoom meetings aren't going to make up for it. So I, I it's just really hard to say for me, Hitler Day at this point. I just don't know. And, I, you know, they're they're going to you're going to see how good of a head coach some of these guys are that have brand new programs, new schemes. And are just trying to get guys, you know, going and be on the same page by the opening game. Yeah. All right. Next up, we've got. Ooh, that's another long one. Oh boy. Oh uh, boy. Oh, I don't this get the long insane. one to start. This is Michael in Seattle. Huh? Michael in Seattle. Thank you for your efforts here. <laughs> uh, question for the pod: Pac-12 recruiting strategy, regional versus national. Hey, Ryan and Dave. Uh, David. Big fan of the show. This is probably the fifth time I've started writing an email question in, but I've, did he actually combine them all? Oh, okay. um, uh, but I've never actually finished one. Usually the moment passes or is asked by another email or in the draft pileup. So here's hoping I actually get this one delivered. I was talking with Hithliday on one of the many forums he posts on, and a question came up about the Pac-12's march back toward national relevance that I wanted to get your take on. I'm sure you're familiar with Bud Elliott's blue chip ratio in that the top contending teams for the playoff have a ratio of four or five star players equal or above 50%. This would indicate that any starter is backed up by incredible depth so that they may mitigate injury or issue by replacing one good player with another. Uh, Looking at today's top teams, the ratio is not only absurdly high, but all of those teams build depth recruiting their region while cherry picking players across the country to go play for them. I got curious about how historic top teams in the Pac-12 have done this. Doing a little bit of research, it was clear during the Pete Carroll years that SC would usually take between 50 to 75% of all top California prospects, with the rest of the conference picking up the scraps. They, too, built depth and got their star players all within a 500-mile radius of L.A. while cherry-picking top players from across the country. The records show that this this run was extremely unique in today's recruiting around Southern California and was as much a product of Pete's success as it was most, if not all, of the conference— not having the same recruiting resources that SC did at the time. 
Wow. Uh, flash forward to today. The top three recruiting schools in the Pac-12, Oregon, UW, and USC, also recruit California pretty heavily. However, what I find interesting is that contrasting styles of Oregon and UW that raise the question about where to focus efforts on recruiting talent. Here's what I mean. Of the six recruiting class, classes Chris Peterson was head coach for, including the one he inherited from Sark, seven if you count the one Jimmy Lake kept together in 2020, only eight players came from east of the Rockies and only two from east of the Mississippi. In three recruiting classes Mario Cristobal was head coach for, including the one inherited from Willie Taggart, signed 21 players east of the Mississippi and 25 players east of the Rockies. Before you ask, there were only six players east of the Rockies in the class that Mario salvaged from Taggart, so no Florigan skewing the, of the data. <clears throat> it's worth mentioning here that while there's no way to accurately quantify it, regional biases about how a four-star or three-star talent would be evaluated in a different part of the country can definitely play a factor, considering that the majority of BCS and CFP champions since 99 build the backbone of their teams on that talent. Example, a three-star wide receiver from Florida would be seen as a four-star in the Pacific Northwest, or some offensive line prospect from the upper Midwest would be a top-tier prospect in Arizona, etc., Considering generally how much talent comes out of the Southeast and Mid-Atlantic, my questions are, we are now a, getting that to was a, a preamble. That was a preamble of the question. Holy hell. Uh, I've never been defeated by an email before, but I'm getting close <laughs> to being defeated by this. <laughs> you do uh, seem a little defeated. It's very dense. Like, each paragraph yeah. is very dense, too. Uh, f- like, each sentence feels like it has many, many clauses. All right. Yeah. You're a great writer, Michael. Uh, for a Pac-12 team to legitimately contend in the, cal- in the college football playoff, can they localize their recruiting to California and states west of the Rockies? Or does a team need to invest in resources to go east and build depth on their roster, picking up several high three-star or four-star kids out of talent-rich areas like Texas, the southeast, or mid-Atlantic regions, picking up three to six kids every cycle from outside their region? Like, for example, that was all one sentence. Yes. All of that I had to read as one because it was one <laughs> sentence. <laughs> Do you want to keep reading or should we answer one at a time? Let's we'll give you a little break. I need a break. Yes. Okay. So a couple of things there. One, when you're talking about like Chris Peterson was a West Coast guy, uh, he wasn't, you know, he, he was more of a finding your kind of players at Boise. He was doing that at Washington. I think p- towards the end of his tenure, he started expanding a little bit. That was just his style where Mario Cristobal, very dynamic recruiter. We didn't really get to see a whole lot of Taggart because he was, he wasn't there that long. I think now you're seeing more of Cristobal. He's still got those Florida ties. So I think that that Florigan thing it is valid. Uh, you know, USC hired a bunch of coaches from Texas. They've just picked up a bunch of commitments from Texas. There's, there's going to be aspects of that depending on where your coaching staff comes from. But say it's a West Coast-based coaching staff, uh, you know, say someone at Oregon, whatever, and there's a West Coast guy, could Oregon make the playoffs by – recruiting local in California. I think they can. I think there's enough talent there. Um, you get that level of success, though. You're going to be able to cherry pick some players across the country. It's not easy to get guys to go out of state uh, for a program that's not really successful. But if Oregon or, or Washington or USC or whoever started making runs at the playoff, they can go out and get some of those top talent, you know, that top talent from uh, out of state, but I think there's enough resources in California and Oregon's recruited at a really high level, bringing in five stars every year. Uh, I think they can do it just by recruiting the the local West coast stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I certainly think it's possible, but once you get that level of success, then you're able to get some of the, the top players from across the country that, you know, they're not every player. You, know, you find a guy in uh, Louisiana that's 
you know, nine out of 10, they want to stay close to home. But you find that one guy who's really just wants to get out of there and Oregon or Washington or USC or whoever can, can recruit that kid and, and bring him to the West coast. So it's not like you can get anyone you want. There are certain out of, there's certain players that are willing to go out of state and there's certain players or out of the region and there's certain players that aren't. So you find those ones that are willing to go out of the region, you're having enough success and you give them a reason to come across country and play for your program. I concur. Nice. Cause I don't, I don't want to talk any more than I have to right now. <laughs> okay. Uh, Sorry. Do you buy into the idea that kids in certain parts of the country are evaluated regionally against their peers and that there's regional bias for one area having greater talent than the rest? Or do you – this again, one sentence. Or do you feel that at the core, a three-star is a three-star and a four-star is a four-star, and they have the same probability of becoming a key part of your team regardless of where they come from? So I think 24-7 Sports does a really good job of having – analysts on the ground at all parts of the country and they all come together. There's so many events now that a guy that's in the, the Northeast can see a player that's in the West and a guy that's in the Southeast can see a Midwest player. Um, there's opportunities for that. And they have these meetings quarterly or I forget how often they have them and they argue for different players. So in, you know, in theory, it's supposed to be a four star kids, a four star kid. Um, is that always the case? No, I'm sure there's going to be some kind of, you know, if, if Florida had like 10 guys that could have been potential five-star receivers, they're all not going to be five-star receivers. You know, um, if one of those guys was in Seattle, maybe he has a little bit better chance of becoming a five-star receiver because he stands out on his own. He doesn't have nine of them he's competing with. I think there could be some aspects of that, but for the most part, I think they do try to do a pretty good job of, well, because he's in, Oregon, he's a four star, but if he was in Florida, he would be a three star. I, I just don't think that's the, the MO of what they're trying to do. Yeah, I agree. All right. And then does all of the regional recruiting strategy really matter if a team is willing to throw millions of dollars into an annual recruiting budget, budget a la Georgia or Clemson? Um, I mean, regional recruiting strategy matters because money doesn't buy players as far as like your budget goes. You do have to find your local players, uh, there's there's players that are just going to be schools that, you know, they're feeder schools. There's areas of the country that Clemson can recruit um, in the South. That are, they'll, they're guys that just go to Clemson. It's it's an easy, it's like getting on a bus. Um, you can get on a bus and go to Clemson. It's just not that hard. It's like your daily commute. But if you're going to get on a plane and go to Clemson and your family's got to come watch you, you spending a whole bunch of money on your annual recruiting budget and sending out all these edits and uh, every letter under the sun and text and and talking on PlayStation and all that stuff. If you're, if you're talking to a kid that doesn't want to leave his mom and, and wants his mom to be able to drive to practice and watch him play all the money in the world is not going to really change that. I mean, unless you're like booster money and you like, you get their dad a job and you know, and they move or something um, like we saw with uh, maybe some kid from Hawaii going to Alabama. But if that's, you know, if outside of that, it's not really about budget. It's about really identifying the right people and recruiting them. I mean, the recruiting budget certainly helps, but it's not like you can abandon your regional. It's not a video game where you can just go say, I have an equal chance of landing this kid that's in my state as some kid that's 3,000 miles away. You can find a kid that's 3,000 miles away that will come to your school but not every kid that's 3,000 miles away will come. You have to find the right ones that are willing to leave. There's some people that are just not willing to leave their region. So spend all the money you want, but you're going to be wasting your time if it's a kid that's just not going to leave. I, I concur. 
I love that you just I, I need you to read long emails because you just agree with everything I said. Okay, so I I did the count. This was a seven hundred and thirty one word <laughs> email. Um and I want to say there were a total of maybe ten sentences. Michael, I love that you finally sent us an email. I appreciate it. Um what I would advise for everyone out there, this is just friendly Dave providing some advice if you if you look if you just want me to be out of breath, that's fine. Send us a 700 word email with like three sentences. In it. That's fine. It's cool. Uh, but if you want a listenable experience first, listen to something else. But if you want this to be the most listenable it can be, let's keep those. Let's keep those emails in that tight 200 word range, maybe yeah. all the way up to four or five. If you really, really got something to say, but 731, that's a little that's a little much. And OK, you wrote a long email, whatever. Could it be in like haiku form or something? <laughs> Like, could I get it well, in let's... some kind of lyrical format where I can just do rhyming things where it's basically autopilot to read the thing? Like, does it have to be a sentence with like 15 commas in it where I don't even know how it started when I get to the end of it? But thank you for your email, Michael. I did love it. I did enjoy it. It was it was there were good questions in it. Ryan provided great answers. Um, and I'm happy. You, I'm happy you emailed in. He said, to, I love love the show. Keep healthy. And here's to hoping Pac-12 football doesn't completely die due to COVID. Yes. We need the period to word ratio to be a little higher. To, you know, a little more. higher next time. Yeah. Everything else was perfect. A little bit higher next time. Yeah. Uh, more. This is our last email. Uh, more. Do you want to read this one? Or you want me to do it? Uh, <laughs> more important stuff. Uh, this is from SB Larry. Hey, Ryan and Dave. Santa Barbara Larry here. Assume you heard how Alabama tested their players for COVID-19 and while the results were pending, allowed the players to participate in joint activities. Uh, then it turns out five players tested positive. Uh, you know what Slick Nick was doing? The old chicken pox party, except with COVID-19. Did we talk about the, this last week or did we? Uh... We talked about the Alabama thing. We didn't talk about the theory that it would be a chicken pox party. Uh, okay. I did on another podcast. So this was, uh, this is interesting. Yeah, I, li- I like this. Uh, you remember back in the day, you would have your kid play with a kid with highly contagious chickenpox, so your kid would get it at a time convenient for you. Then no more concerns about chickenpox. Think about it. You have the antibody and via a COVID-19 party and no more uncertainty about who can play on any given Saturday. And don't give me the statistic about having the antibody but no Static. immunity. Static. I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. Static about. Okay. You're swimming upstream against 60 years of COVID virus history. Uh, I'm thinking we need to fire up COVID-19 parties for Pac-12 schools in Ryan's garage. Oh, okay. Maybe 10 guys at a time for an hour playing cards with some guy with raging <laughs> raging COVID-19. Say we shoot for all 90 players per team, 12 teams, or 1,080 players. In a mere 14 days, we can ensure the Pac-12 is on the same footing as Slick Nick. If you were a head coach or football player where this is the year you have to make it happen, would you consider COVID-19 parties? I would say keep up the great work, but I'm not sure Dave and work belong in the same sentence. Santa Barbara Larry. So logistically, so I, I like the I like the theory, right? I like the idea. Um, but there's a there's a challenge here. So chicken pox is a known virus. A lot of people have had it. In fact, most of the adults trying to get their kids sick via chickenpox party, they've all had it. They're not going to get it again because that's the way that virus works. You don't get it a second time. Or at least not to my understanding. Maybe there's rare cases where you do. Um, this thing, 
so say you get all these hundred players sick and they go hang out with some friends and then those friends go home to their families and then their families get sick. I mean, you're, you're straight up killing people if you try to do this. I don't know, man. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, people don't really die from the chicken pox, right? Like, I mean, if you're an adult and you get the pox, I mean, you could die of it. Uh, that's why they try to get they well now they vaccine but in olden times you would try to get it when you were a kid because you're less likely to die of it um this obviously kills especially old people or immunocompromised people or whatever at a pretty high rate so yeah these for the for the athletes themselves by all accounts they're probably not going to die of it we don't know what ramifications there might be for lungs and various other things but they're probably not going to die of it um but they might pass it on to somebody who does um chicken pox was never really working that way because there was kind of a built-in adult immunity to it um in the time period you're describing yeah so i think uh i mean i'm not saying that nick seven was doing this but was he super concerned that you know would he rather have some of his players just get it now and get it over with I don't know, maybe. I mean, but yeah, th- that's a dangerous game, like Dave said. I mean, you, you could die. You know, the-, the player could die. Like, I mean, if it's a, I mean, there could be a player that has some kind of lung issue they didn't really even know, or you know, asthma or something, and and maybe they have a bad reaction to this. You know, for the majority of young people, it doesn't really have the same kind of impact. Certainly, anywhere near uh, what some of the older population experiences. But you know, there's coaches around. But if you test them and then they're isolated for six days or 12 days or two weeks or whatever it is. Uh, and then they come out and they got the antibodies. Yeah. I would feel pretty confident, you know, if uh, you have a player with antibodies and, you know, they're probably going to be pretty safe. I would think going forward um, I, yeah. for, for at least probably a year or two. I don't think it's going to be permanent immunity, but I don't least, think so. No, no, it's not going to be like chicken pox. Um, Santa Barbara saying like 60 years of COVID uh, data we've got on this. We don't, we don't know. No, no, sure, you'll get, you'll get a, You'll get at least, I think he's saying short-term immunity. Um, So basically like you do to the flu or whatever, where you're after you get it, you've probably got a, you know, at least several months where you couldn't get it again. Yeah. Um, But I don't think there's any, anything showing yet that it's going to be like long lasting. Like if you get a polio vaccine, suddenly you can't get it again. Is there anything nefarious going on there in your mind? With what? Nick Saban. Uh, No, I think this is, I always, I lean hard against conspiracies at all times um so i i i'm almost always inclined more to believe in simple incompetence than nefarious um conspiracy um no just somebody was asleep at the switch planned things incorrectly and i know that's kind of sacrilegious to think about a nick saban program but even even he can make mistakes um and you know there there might just be like a lack of you know, taking it seriously in the extent that you have procedures in place, but not taking it seriously in other ways, like having a meeting in between when you test and when you get the results. That's stupid. So why'd you do that? Um, but that's, you know, that's taking it seriously for public appearances, but not taking it seriously in the actual functions of your program. Um, and I think it speaks to the huge disconnect just in so many areas of the country right now and how how to treat the current situation. Um and I think maybe that's part of what's going on with some of these testing fiascos. Yeah. Like why Houston, despite all of this data that shows, you know, you can be asymptomatic. And I know the WHO reported that you couldn't transmit it asymptomatically and then walked that back like three hours later. 
But still, that got out that, okay, you can't transmit it asymptomatically now, but now apparently that's even been retracted. But you, at, at best, you don't know. And first, even some people who are symptomatic don't have a fever. So you, you can't just wait on that sort of stuff to test. You have to test preemptively. Yeah. Um, so all this stuff, I just think a lot of people are operating with incomplete information, even beyond what you might understand. And I think there's a lot of bad information out there that's still circulating. I'm sure there's some people out there who are still not taking ibuprofen if they have it because of bad information that came out three months ago. So, yeah, I don't know, man. It's all. I, but I, basically, I don't think it's a conspiracy. I think it's just simple incompetence. Yeah, I agree with you there. Um, but we'll see. I mean, there it could be a situation where a few players get it this week. And then a few players get it next week. And a few players get the week after that. And like by the time you get toward the season, like your team might have herd immunity, you know? Um, I don't know. That you might have something like that. And it it might have a benefit. You might see that the, you know, if say Alabama, a bunch of players end up getting it over the next month and they're mostly fine by the time of the season, that might be better, you know. Uh it might be a better result than the team that like complete keeps everyone completely safe. Then a few people get it, you know, the week of the first game, and it's it's you're actually worse off. Uh, I don't know. We we just don't know. This is all uncharted territory. But I agree with Dave. I don't think this was some kind of conspiracy or a uh, you know, a chicken pox party or anything like that. But it'd be great if it was. Yes, so that'd cool. be an awesome story. We would yes. we would talk about that for. We would talk about that even longer than we talked about Confederate generals. And uh, I I could have gone I could have gone so much longer on Civil War stuff. <laughs> you know what we should do next time. Which huh. Civil War general is each Pac-12 coach? Oh, God. We have to do a lot more research. I mean, that's that's tougher than the president. I think I could uh, nail that one pretty quick. But You probably yeah, no, could. We'd have to do some work. Yeah. Um, I always felt like, you know, reading the book and, and, you know, I always feel bad about your your home state of Georgia whenever they get, like, pummeled, you know? No, they deserved it. They had it coming. They should have gotten more. Um, <laughs> if they could have burned just a little bit more of the state, that probably would have been preferable. <laughs> because <laughs> he, he did just keep it to like that narrow band on the walk from Atlanta to Savannah. They really needed to expand outward. Um, and I think that was a mistake. I would like after going through some of that, I would love to go read a specific book on Sherman's March to the sea and really about the logistics of like what he was able to do, like all the equipment, all the men, all the like every time you read a battle, there's always like some kind of, oh, there was a there was a rock. It, it, it stopped our progress for a month, you know, like and it didn't seem like anything stopped him. Like it just whatever they had to, you know, forging rivers or whatever, like ter- any kind of terrain. He just seemed to be able to handle it, you know, but there was always like in those that, you know, musket era battles. There was, you know, there was always like marshes or something that would just like slow down an entire army and make things impossible. Well, and, and South Georgia is swampy. Like they were walking through some, some crap towards the end of it. Um, but it seems like he never had excuses though. Like he just no, got to where well, he needed to go all the time. And you know? he pretty much shattered the army that was opposing him before, um, getting to Atlanta or, or soon thereafter. So there wasn't much organized opposition, to what he was doing either makes it easier to traverse the a little bit easier and they could do some wide foraging which some might call stealing some some might call it stealing we call it foraging um and uh living off the land yeah living off the land living off the land marching through georgia that's a great song if you if you get done with this and you want to go listen to some civil war music marching through georgia great song
That was one of the other things that like Grant sort of started that too, right? Where they were like, he was like, Hey, we're going to do a quick hitter and we're only going to bring like X amount of days of rations. And if we need more, we can like use the land. But instead of like, okay, we got to, you know, this, it's like moving a cruise ship. He was like, no, we're going to take, we're going to take some of the little cutters and just go instead, instead of like taking the whole shebang and, you know, move significant pieces of the army in a much faster way and have great effects. So I think he was one of the first, it seems like one of the first guys to do that too. Yeah. And there were some Southern generals who were very good at that sort of stuff. Stonewall Jackson was one just moving fast without much supply train. Um, but Grant was a, he was also a good adopter of other things. Like he was fine just picking up what somebody else was doing and do it, do it as well. Um, so that was a, one of the things I should have mentioned when I'm talking about him as a tactician too, even beyond like the strategic vision of the war. Um, he just kind of got it. We got to move fast. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's better to be there first than it is to be there with the perfect plan. Yeah. It's, I, it's funny. Just, you see that in real life, you know, um, where people that are like, they would spend all their time working on a plan and never want to execute. And then there's some people that just like, just execute and they don't have any plan and it can, it can be a disaster too. But I would rather do that with, you know, maybe a little forethought and then just do it as opposed to. It's all about that sweet spot. Yeah. You got to find that, that right, you know, that sweet spot, but there's just so many people with the analysis, their paralysis by analysis, whatever, like, uh, how's that saying go? Something like that. Um, paralysis by analysis. You had it yeah. right. Okay. You nailed it. Uh, and you're just like, Oh, we could do this. We could do this. We could do this. Like, yeah, just, just do it. Like stop talking about it and do it. All right. Well, I think that should wrap it up. Uh, good stuff. You got a history lesson. This is, should be an entertaining show for people, hopefully. Um, <laughs> and if not, you know, we'll get some, we'll get a bunch of one-star reviews, but give us five stars. Say we don't like civil war talk, but we're going to give you five stars. Anyway, we do appreciate all of that. Um, well, that is David Woods. I'm Ryan Abraham. We are the podcast of champions. Thank you so much for tuning in and we will talk to you next time. Bye. The chilling new original docuseries on Paramount Plus. Why did he kill his family? The answer lies across the ocean and a woman named Sylvie. To the can model. Where desire leads to deception. I ended up spending twelve and fifteen thousand dollars a day. It was addictive. I can't get you out. And obsession leads to murder. Who did this to your family? You can't really maintain a fantasy forever. Control all desire. Now streaming on Paramount Plus.